Welcome to the podcast of Greenlight Bookstore, Season 3. As our store programming once more grows to include virtual, in-store, and off-site events, so too will these conversations. Our episodes this season range from intimate conversations pulled from our Zoom recordings to lively in-person gatherings between authors and friends in the heart of Brooklyn. Greenlight still strives for ways to create connection around books, and this podcast helps provide a window into the ways that ideas and stories connect us all. So enjoy the conversation and visit greenlightbookstore.com for more. Good evening. Welcome to Greenlight Bookstore. We're excited to host tonight's event with Chris Belcher presenting her new book, Pretty Baby. She'll be talking with Chloe Cooper-Jones. You're in for an excellent evening. So our interviewer tonight um, is Chloe Cooper-Jones. Jones is the author of Easy Beauty, also available at the counter. She is a winning award winning and was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize in Future Writing. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. She will be speaking with our featured author, Chris Belcher. Belcher is a writer, professor, and former sex worker. She completed a PhD in English at the University of Southern California, where she is now an assistant professor teaching of writing and gender studies. Under her working name, Natalie West, she edited the acclaimed anthology, We Too, Essays on Sex Work and Survival. Born and raised in West Virginia, she now lives in Los Angeles. Tonight's featured book, Pretty Baby, is her utterly profound and thought-provoking debut memoir and companion to her viral 2018 salon article, What a Dom- Dominatrix Knows About Me Too. Belcher dissects male desire and its effect on women, offending our ideas about desire, class, and power. Carmen Maria Machado plays it as a muscular candy memoir that shimmers with rage and insight. So you're in for something special tonight. Chris will be reading from the book, and then Chloe will join in for a conversation, and you'll get a chance to ask questions after that. So um, please join me in welcoming to the stage Chris Belcher and Chloe Cooper-Jones. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm really excited to read from this book. Um, I'm going to read actually from chapter 20, so it's pretty deep into the book, but um, it's a bit more essayistic. The the chapter starts a little bit more essayistic, and so I don't think you need to know much, but it's about respectability, politics, and sex work, so get ready for that. Um, Also, I'm going to say the word cock like six times, but I'm mostly (laughs) saying that to get myself ready, not you. (laughs) Most pro-doms don't fuck their clients, or if they do... They don't talk about it. There's a hierarchy among sex workers, imposed from the outside and enforced on the inside. Our morality judged by acts engaged, their legality, their intimacy, their risk. That hierarchy got inside me. I understood the relationship between myself and my clients as one of sadist to masochist, dominant to submissive, Pain, not pleasure, connecting us, no matter the scene. Never mind that masochists derive pleasure from pain. There is no room for nuance in the whore hierarchy. There is no room for logic either, for that matter. Most prodoms I know could be wrist-deep in client asses, feeling superior to other sex workers because they don't fuck their clients. It's fine if there's no nuance. It's fine if there's no logic when you can imagine yourself on top. It's hot that you're a dom. Nearly every woman I will date after Catherine will make some form of this statement. But if you were an escort, I couldn't do it. Even Catherine made some form of that statement. The corners of their mouths got tight when they said it, 
like they'd swallowed a bite of yogurt that had gone off. They imagined me sullied by cock. Cock is front and center in almost all forms of sex work, and no one, not me or my past lovers, should kid themselves about that. Even my friends who made feminist porn did it for reasons that could be traced back to cock. All those Butch Dyke fisting scenes were motivated by cock and their absolute refusal to center it. At the dungeon, the masochists came for pain and the fetishists came for feet. The cross-dressers came to feel dumb and slutty dressed as women because that's how they saw women when they were dressed as men. They came for the power exchange, masculinity for femininity, with femininity always assuming its place on the bottom. I avoided these clients when I could. I often couldn't. Their money was as green as anyone's. No matter what desire drove men to the dungeon, sloshing around underneath the vernacular of kink burned the white-hot flame of sex. There had been clients over the years who had come to me for sessions that didn't start with their sexual desire and end with their sexual gratification. It was sex work, after all. Years of scenes stretched out behind me, and no matter how transgressive they had otherwise been, nearly all of them ended in the way that most conventional sex between men and women ended, when the man comes. The only difference being that my clients came into their own hands, not into mine. The risk would have, that I would have run by letting a stranger come in my palm was criminal. It would have been fairly low on the scale of intimacy, but lower too on the whore hierarchy. All that degrading, largely racist talk of happy endings and the girls who give them. The difference between my hand on a client's hip and my hand on a client's penis was, to me, immense. Not because it was criminal, because it would have knocked me down one rung lower on that poor hierarchy ladder. I did occasionally work with a particular type of client who came to me mostly absent the intoxicating pull of sex. These were the clients on whom I focused when I wanted to justify the real human value of my work, since our culture finds little real value in the real human need for sex. These clients lived their lives as men, but understood themselves as women, and they sought out doms whom they could trust to see them, at least for the span of an hour, in the ways they saw themselves. I would have called these clients trans, but that wasn't a word they used to describe themselves. Some did tell me they would have sought medical transition, a sex change, they called it, if they were younger today. Back when they were younger, it had been too hard, they said. Most of them didn't know any trans women, so they didn't know that it was still hard, but I never took the time to make them face that. We only had an hour or two together, and that was barely enough time to fantasize about a different kind of world inside the dungeon, much less the one on the outside. Most of these clients told me they couldn't transition now because they were too old. They felt they'd missed their windows of opportunity to be pretty, to be desired, to be like me. They thought they would be ugly, and they knew that being an ugly woman was difficult. While I did have something they wanted, their submission was rarely to me. It was a submission to femininity itself, and the dungeon a safe place to hide the fact that they wanted it. It was submission to the parts of themselves that they buried at work, at home, in their bedrooms with their wives and girlfriends who didn't understand them or were never given the chance. 
I met the first of these clients early in my career. We exchanged cash and pleasantries in a mid-city strip mall parking lot just outside a cheap nail salon. His hands shook when he handed over the money. I ran my thumbs across his swollen knuckles to calm him. His fingers were arthritic and reminded me of my mother's. Until they saw that he brought his own nail polish, fire engine red, the women working in the salon would think he was my father. When they saw it, they would think he was a pervert, and me a pervert by association. That was why he hired me. He'd flown in from Indianapolis for safety in numbers. After our Manny Petties and a makeup session at Sephora, at a Sephora location I chose because it wasn't in a mall and he could make a beeline to the car in his red lipstick, we drove to the dungeon where he told me that he only let himself dress up with dongs. He never dressed up alone, he said. He told me that when he dressed up alone, it made him sad, edge of a cliff kind of sad. Doms kept him from tumbling over. I walked over to the dungeon's sissy closet and pulled out the hairbrush we used to brush out the wigs that the typical cross-dressing clients, the sissies, tossed on the floor after they jerked off into their trashy fishnets. I asked him to sit down between my legs and I started to brush his hair. His real hair, not a wig. It was long and thick, prettier than mine. He risked being called a fag when he grew it out, he said. He needed to look into the mirror and see something, even if it was just this one thing that felt right. I ran the brush from his scalp to his shoulders. He sat there quietly, watching us both in the mirror. No one has ever brushed my hair, he said, not like this. When I finished, he turned to me, pulled my hands to his lips and kissed them over and over and over again. As the years ticked by, more of these clients found me, but they remained few and far between. So I kept doing the work, with cock its main objective, telling myself that one day I'd probably write about it and that would turn it all into art. If you can convince someone that sex is art, it loses its film of filth. I learned that in grad school, when I read the 1973 U.S. Supreme Court decision Miller v. California for a seminar paper. Obscenity is utterly without socially redeeming value. Art, on the other hand, is at least open to debate. So I had all these ideas about the first questions that I would ask you to sort of like, tell us your journey to this book or whatever. But then uh, I think because you read that section, there's so much in there that I just want to ask you right away. And, and one has to do with I think one of the things that I found to be so incredible and so powerful in this book is your own, your own, the way that you allow yourself in many scenes that you describe to grapple with a lot of complex ideas that you find yourself on multiple sides of the line with. And I think because you read about the horror hierarchy, I think that's a really important one. Um, there's a scene in the book, I think maybe my favorite scene in the book, where Catherine, your girlfriend, goes to a book party, and you have this moment of being very aware of a different type of power hierarchy, and your own complicity in it, your own rejection of it, your own desire to appeal to your education or theory or feminism to get outside of it, but not ever really completely being able 
And I felt like in those moments, the book is just so human and so powerful and so honest. And so I was wondering if you could just start by talking a little bit about the choice to to be so direct and honest about your own grappling and, and, and moments where you don't always come off looking like so great or just like you understand how to navigate all these spaces. Yeah, that particular moment that you're talking about, I mean, it really does represent this hierarchy, right? Like, because the whore hierarchy isn't just a hierarchy of, you know, people doing different professions within sex work, right? Um, stripping or doming or escorting or whatever it might be, but it's also within sex work who um, is working from a, you know, from a position in academia, which I was doing, or working through my degree while I was doing sex work. And I think, like, what you're kind of, what you're pointing to here is, like, another layer of shame that maybe is part of, you know, the genesis of the book itself, which is, like, do you write about it? Um, actually, like, um, at, a, at a book event that I did a, a couple of days ago, another sex worker, like, asked me, like, do you feel like because you did sex work and, and you're a writer that this is the story you have to tell? And um, and I think that that's a, a very real, um, I think that's a very real feeling. And for me, it was um, actually the, the stigma and the fear that I had around being outed in academia that became the reason that I wrote the book as opposed to, to running away from it in some ways because I wanted to be in control of the narrative. But then on the other hand, that kind of opens up, again, this sort of space to feel like, should I be telling this story? Um, like, uh, am, I, am I coming at it as an academic and not a sex worker? Like, what does that mean? Like, all of that, like, became part of, you know, the negotiation. And I think in, this, in the scene that you're talking about, like, I was really feeling like an imposter in a lot of different ways as an academic, but also as a sex worker. Is it ruining me? ruining anything if you describe that scene a little bit? No, no, I'll totally describe that scene. So this scene is happening, yeah, in a, in a space quite like this, a, a bit more of like an academic lecture hall. Um, and um, I was there with my partner, who's also a sex worker. Um, the One of the people who was reading that night, she went up to get her book signed, and the person who was reading, she said like, oh, I'm, I'm a professional dominatrix, like you wrote this book that actually is like quite um, informative to my own work and she was like what are you doing here like you can't be an academic and be a sex worker like why are you here at this at this on a Friday night as opposed to being like in the dungeon and in that moment like I watched it happen and and yeah face this moment where I'm thinking like okay that would have never happened to me because I wouldn't have to say I'm a sex worker I could say I'm a graduate student and I would be able to move through that space unmarked um, in ways that she wasn't able to be if she was being transparent. Um, and so, yeah, that's a kind of moment. And it's, it's like hard to grapple with that, to know that I didn't say anything in the moment. I mean, you know, part of, I think, writing the book is, is like having a space to like grapple with the shame of not saying anything in that moment. Yeah, because and I think this is all tied to sort of the last lines of what you just read to us as well, this idea that if sex becomes art, you remove well, you know, the filth in your words, but also a certain type of reality or vulnerability or, or like respect or honor, right? But at the same time, you're an artist and you're an academic. So those things are also very authentic to you and writing all these things are authentic to you. But it does feel like you're often straddling this, this line, I think it, incredibly productively, but 
straddling this line of like, am I a member of this community fully? Am I a voyeur? Am I, do I always have one's foot out and that's why I can write about it? And I wonder how much that was in your mind as you were sort of developing this project and, and thinking through how you were going to structure the book and, and tell your own story. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely it was definitely on my mind, and it, the the book that I edited before um, before conceiving of this book um, is one where I was bringing together a lot of sex working writers um, to to make this collection of, of essays and stories, and that is like you know I was very much utilizing my um, you know my my place in academia to be able to do that, and that feels very different than something like this. Um, but I, you know, I always wanted this book to reflect on childhood as well. Like I wanted it to be, to be able to use the lens of sex work and my sort of understanding of sexuality and power and femininity through those experiences to look back and understand my childhood. Um, and because the book is sort of, I, I guess, you know, it is a sort of journey from being a precocious, you know, young girl to like finding feminism to finding queerness and then ending up in academia which is like not a space that often feels very feminist or queer <laughs> in lots of ways um, but because it is that journey I guess it has that same kind of reflective element but I do think that um, that that yeah I, I wanted to include all of it and not just have it be that um, you know that negotiation of academic world and the sex work world that I found myself in over the past 10 years. Yeah, I, I just have to ask you, and I was talking to you about this a little bit before, the event started, like, I was so struck by some of the just structural choices that you make in this book, and I do really want to talk about how much of this book is actually about childhood, and about searching for, I think, like, a form of agency through sexuality, and how many ways that, probably for all of us, you take several steps forward and several steps back, and that's another thing that you just do so incredibly well when you're talking about childhood and, and the influences that are sort of creating the self that, that, we, that we get to read about. But before we got, just, just, just say in academia for like one more second, um, sorry, is like the, the choices that you make in the sort of latter half of the book when you're talking about your entry into sex work and your journey in sex work, they are also like almost sentence by sentence or paragraph by paragraph um, alternating with your journey in academia as a grad student. And I think something that's so, it seems to me so intentionally done, so beautifully done, is constantly subverting for the audience where we think exploitation is going, or power or shame, where we think that's gonna come from. And it's like paragraph by paragraph, it's coming from very different places. Um, also the jobs that you have before um, joining with Catherine and the exploitation that you experience at the Taco Bell or the um, Youth Genius Camp and all of these spaces. And so that just felt so intricately built just from a writing perspective and so thoughtful and brilliant and intelligent. So I just wanted to ask you, like, how did you do that? And also, how were you thinking through that? And how did the editing process maybe sharpen some of those things? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, to me, when I look back at the book now, it does feel in some ways like, like a litany, right? And then in like the sense of the word that it hears, here are these like experiences piling up. And like, there are a lot of moments of, of shame and exploitation and humiliation. And the ones that are felt in the dungeon, actually, for me, were far less acute than the ones that I experienced in academia. And I've, I've thought a lot since writing this book about just, you know, the sort of performances that do happen in that world and how um, parallel they can feel to things that happen in a BDSM dungeon, right? Like, like performing a hundred book exam in front of like a panel of your, um, you know, superiors, right? And like demonstrating knowledge in this way that is like durational and, um, and can feel really high stakes, like, but it's real, it's not a performance, it's not play, and it has real consequences. Um, and so I think, yeah, I mean, um, you know, just putting these things together, like, I do think that just the distinctions blur between those worlds, and, and I wanted that to happen. Um, though I'd say, like, in, in the process of really um, aligning the chronology of, of the book, because I was, like, pushing, um, <laughs> pushing a little bit more thematically on the book at some points, and then had to kind of realign, um, you know, under under the guidance of my wonderful editor sitting right here in the borough, realign some things chronologically um, in ways that, like, I was forcing, I think I was forcing some, some ideas about craft onto the chronology of the book that were actually impeding the clarity of those parallels. Um, and once I actually looked at the timeline of events, it was all there. Right, like all of those sort of like parallel um, exploitations and moments of humiliation. I mean, they were just happening in my life simultaneously um, to different degrees. Yeah, okay, so now that we've said something about embarrassment and humiliation, I have to, t um, so right before the event, Chris uh, disclosed to me that one of her um, great embarrassments in life, you said it was acute, was karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> and so just, I mean, just maybe the act of holding this microphone right now is sort of positive. And I thought that was so funny and so great, and I wanted to talk about it because I think one of the things that I loved so much about this book, and also one of the things that made me feel so close to you in this book, is what I would call your, like, highly singular tapestry of embarrassment. <laughs> it's like the, the things that cause you to feel embarrassment or shame are are the sort of really I mean it's so human it's what makes um, you as a singular person like leap from the page but they're also specific and uh, and so unexpected and, and they shift um, and so and I think you talk about it you know as you're saying about themes in the book it's like that's something that's present all the way through childhood all the way through the end of the book and so yeah do you want to share with some some of the most embarrassing things? Or some of the things that make you the most uncomfortable? Or? Well, I, I can theorize a little bit about the karaoke and how it relates to some of the embarrassment in the book because so much of the book, and I, I think that this is just like living a queer life in some ways, that it doesn't stop in adolescence in the ways that I think some people settle on the performances they're going to give like early on. But, you know, it's like trying on different modes of gender, of presentation, of like, feeling like discomfort in one one kind of performance of gender and like 
having to rewrite it, do it all over again, right? Like, I mean, I think karaoke is, is a really cute example of like standing up and, and, and um, becoming something, like, um, you know, uh, imitating somebody. Um, and, I, and isn't that just like what gender performance is? And I think a lot of the, the moments of embarrassment like in the book are around gender and sexuality and trying on these different roles that um, don't seem to fit and having to do it over and over and over again. Um, I, I don't think that I'm done with that right? <laughs> at, all, at all. I'm sure I'll have some moments of gender confusion like before the end of the evening. But um, <laughs> We are going to karaoke after this. Oh, right? Great, yeah. great, great. <laughs> <laughs> all this practice with the mic in hand. Yeah. Um, but I would say though too, I mean I like you know really reflecting on the ways that like so so much of that came into the dungeon because I was incredibly adept at humiliation play. Like I was very good at it. Became my, um, it, it became my specialty. And so I think like there are ways that we like draw on these things that we're experiencing like really deeply, um, just out in the world. It can take them into spaces like BDSM play and, and end up, um, you know, being able to use that feeling to inflict it on someone else in a way that they that they want, um, which was like empowering in its own kind of way. Yeah, I mean, there's just on this theme, like there's so much in the book, and I loved some of these descriptions about just like talismans or signals of belonging, and when those signals of belonging get disrupted or changed or surprising us. So I think one of the best descriptions in the book is just this moment where you go over to, I can't remember his name, but your sort of friend's house who's gay, after you've come out as in, in high school and you're wearing an Abercrombie t-shirt though to his house and you have this great line where you're like, it's like wearing a fur coat to the pool party or something. Like it was just absolutely the wrong thing. And suddenly it's like, and you have all these great descriptions about buying these awful Abercrombie, which like we must be the same age who can't relate to this. Like, and like leaving the bad perfume and the clothes and then going like literally just crossing a threshold, right? Like entering a specific space and then suddenly being like, oh, everything is wrong. Like, this is the total wrong way to present myself. And then he does what I think is, like, such a tender gesture um, in the book, which is cut up your T-shirt for you and draw pentagrams on it. Which is, like, <laughs> <laughs> which is like I, it, and I loved that scene for so many reasons, and I think partially just as a, as a writer in admiration of what you're doing, that's a scene that does so many levels of work, right? Like, it's really specific. I can see everything. It's so beautifully rendered. Um, but it also is saying so much about, like, in a very, very concrete way about what you're talking about. Like, how a t-shirt, changing a t-shirt, or, or I think hair, right? Hair is a really important thing in this book. And I wonder if you'll talk about that. Like, how the changes in your hair throughout the whole book are representing a closeness or a distance from a type of authenticity that you're always sort of searching for. And so, yeah, maybe you'll say more about that, like how many of the aesthetics of the body, um, how that plays a role in how you're seeing yourself in relation to, yeah, an, an authentic representation of self. Yeah, well, what's so funny too about the word authenticity in that question is that we imagine authenticity is something that somehow comes from within us, right? As opposed to reflecting something else. And I think I was searching for an authentic queerness, but I was searching for it by looking at my friend. 
And I think that that is very much of queer culture, right? That we're not necessarily looking always inside ourselves or to some kind of like, certainly not familial, right? Kinds of like bonds or, or culture in order to like make our lives, but we're looking to our peers and those people around us. And so like having those, like that gay friend or having like later, like later going to like a gay bar and seeing like my first like, you know, like the DJ who was like dancing really cool on the dance floor in the gay bar. Like I was trying to fashion myself after these people um, but I think it still was a move toward authenticity because it is a kind of like just shared like community understanding of what queerness is and it's always going to kind of change and shift. And so, um, yeah, I, I like the idea of authenticity being something that actually doesn't always come from inside us but can just reflect a community. Um, but I will tell, I will talk about the haircut too. Yeah, talk about hair. <laughs> Especially because um, I think that the haircut that I was so, so in the, in the book um, and the, the title of the book comes from um, a pretty baby contest that I was entered into at like eight months old by my parents. Um, and the reflection that I had as a teenager was not necessarily about myself, like having some trouble myself being in, a, in a, an infant beauty contest, but seeing my mother had a mullet. Um, I was in 1985, and so my mother had a mullet in the, um, in the photograph. And I had this huge reaction of like, you know, you have a lesbian haircut. How could you have a lesbian haircut? Why do you have that? I would never have it. And what's really funny is like, it's quite similar to the haircut I have now. And I didn't even, I mean, the hers was a bit more severe than mine, but it's like really funny that it's kind of come full circle. And I didn't realize, it. a friend pointed out to me last week. So um, it's really just, I, well, I just like, yeah, I mean, again, like totally oblivious until I write something down apparently. I don't know. Wait, but there's more about the hair. There's more about the hair. Well, she, yeah, I mean, she. Why did she get the haircut? So she, she got the haircut, and this is this is a funny thing too, because like her, to her, the haircut was not a lesbian haircut. She's not. She's a straight identified woman. Um, to her, the haircut was what she called a bitch haircut. So she <laughs> wanted to look like, she wanted to look like you know Joan Jett, or you know like she wanted to look like Cher. She wanted to look like somebody who would piss off my father, somebody who wouldn't be like palatable um, to him, to male desire in some ways. And so that slippage between what she would call like a bitch haircut and what I would later call a lesbian or a butch haircut is really funny because like in either in either sense it is a kind of like stepping outside of of like I guess like beauty standards that would attract, you know, male desire or attention. Um, I wanted it, I wanted that for myself at a certain point, um, and my mom did too. Um, yeah, and so I think that slippage is really probably pretty interesting. Yeah, I think that slippage is really crucial to the whole book, right? So in some ways we're talking, and I think this is again, like as a craft, from a craft perspective, one of the great um, accomplishments of this book is how, you're, how good you are at making a theoretical or philosophical question or concept um, render, how do you render it tangibly? And I think the hair is such a good example because as you're saying, like the power that you can um, access by disrupting a male gaze or a form of desire that you want to step outside of, like that becomes a very important theme for you throughout the book. And a lot of times it's represented through the book 
by what haircut you have or what hair you're hiding or then when you start this role as a dominatrix and the people around you telling you that, well, now you need to look as feminine as possible. And there's a great scene in which you're talking about putting on makeup again and letting your hair grow out and how that is like a quite painful or, or sort of, well, I don't want to, yeah, I mean, just like a very painful and sort of disorienting experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that some of it, this, this relates back to that question of like embarrassment or humiliation or shame. I think, you know, I had, I had displayed, I, I thought that I was displaying my politics in some ways through my aesthetic, right? And so like cutting my hair or like my relationship to like body hair and all of these things, like to me, like a, that, a lot of that was my feminist politics and I had grown to feel that way. And so I think, you know, I, I've thought about this book in some ways as like, um, you know, finding queerness as a way to claw myself like away from patriarchy, away from the male gaze and then, you know, getting to a certain point and realizing I need money and then having to crawl my way all the way back. Um, and that can be humiliating, like that can feel humiliating, not just in terms of like gender politics, but also in terms of class and labor and like realizing that you have to put on a certain kind of gendered performance in order to, um, in order to make money it can be humiliating for all different kinds of people for all, all kinds of reasons. Yeah, I mean, there's such like a, such a brilliant sort of like nesting doll feeling to reading your book of ideas because it's like everything you're saying right like the class things and and the sort of humiliation of needing to try on a different version of femininity to make this money that you need to make and then at one point you're like ah but I'm also very good at humiliating men I really like this and this feels really good and then you know a couple pages later you're like but I'm also in this power dynamic where they're paying me so there's just like this constant I, I think slippage feels like the word of the night, like slipping between concepts, but but the way that it reads is like this kaleidoscopic view of such complicated things. And the effect is that this is not a didactic book. This is not a book in which you are telling people how to feel or think about this. It's a book, and I feel like this is quite rare, um, in which you are just chronicling a very brilliant minds struggling with really difficult things and not being ashamed or 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 uncomfortable seemingly. I'm sure it was harder <laughs> alone in a room, but but to the reader, like just really embracing all the different aspects of that. And I think another theme that's so important in this sort of slippage question is that of boundaries, right? And how finite your boundaries can be. And I think in the section you just read, it's like a dick on the leg or a cock on the leg, but a cock in the hand and like the difference between that. And there's so many moments in which you're really asking yourself in any number of contexts where your boundaries are. And then the secondary problem of how to articulate them. Um, and I wondered if you could say more about that, like how that felt to you like a really difficult thing to write about, a really crucial thing to write about. Um, and yeah, how you, you view the sort of kaleidoscopic style of, of writing about these things. I mean, I, I wish for for myself that there was a kind of hero's journey in this book toward like being able to articulate, understand and articulate one's boundaries. Um, 
and that like the end point was like becoming a dominatrix who is so good at it because BDSM like gives us the tools to negotiate consent and, and all of those things. But I mean, that's, that's not my experience. And I think that that too, you know, because it is reflecting on, well, where did I learn to, to start articulating my desire or to start, um, you know, understanding my boundaries? Like I learned that in, in middle school, like alongside all of these other people who are learning all kinds of terrible things <laughs> in middle school about power and sex. Um, and so there isn't, yeah, I, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't come to a point where I've figured it out. Um, but I would say that actually, like, I think, um, like, if you want the hero's journey in this room um, <laughs> about, like, my ability to articulate boundaries and and, um, and negotiate consent, when I had to tell my father about the book, it, it was not something that I was looking forward to, and I put it off for a very long time until it was printed, basically. Um, and I... Um, I asked him not to read it. I just said, like, I, I, I wrote this book. This is what it's about. I don't think it would be good for our relationship if you would read it. And my father agreed. So, like, that, I mean, honestly, I think that is the hero's journey of the book. And if you read the book, you'll see that I fail at doing that over and over and over again, even when I should be so good at it because I was supposed to be doing it professionally. Um, I kept failing, um, but I feel like I've maybe gotten a handle on it in some mm -hmm. ways. So, yeah. Do you think he's going to honor that? He's not going to read it? I do, I do. Um, yeah, I think he will. Yeah. You're so... I have no idea how long you're going to keep talking? I don't... I have no idea. I'm going to ask you some more questions and then make sure that people have the chance to ask you questions. Um, I think your empathy for everybody in this book, there are no real villains. There are people who do really difficult things, but you give everybody, I think, their space to be human. And I think that's a really incredible thing in this book, even though there are moments in which that seems like a very hard thing to do. I think the way that you render your parents is, is incredible. And they're sort of not um, flawless, but, but very real sort of journey with you to sort of figure some of these things out. Um, and I wondered, were there different versions of this book in which the way that you were, you know, maybe earlier drafts, in which the way that you were writing about people, whether it be exes or parents or whomever, that were less generous or more, um, not as multidimensional, and if that was something that took some time to get to in the writing process. Yeah, there are definitely scenes that dropped out, and, and I, you know, like part of that is a, a mode of protection um, and you know for myself and for like my, my family um, those things kind of moved to the side but I, I also would say like over the past year um, writing this book I've also been teaching um, I, I teach still um, at USC and I've been teaching a course on contemporary LGBTQ issues and so I always have this group of queer students who want to talk about their parents and it's been fascinating to me how much grace they have been able to show, especially at like 21, 22, for understanding their parents and understanding their parents' like moments that, that, I, that I interpret as, as homophobic, and they do indeed as well, but they can try to understand the care that their parents are coming from and see love where I couldn't often see. Um, and I think that like, being around them and having those conversations, they're just, 
they're able to do at 22 what I was not able to do at 22. And I think that like some of their grace may have like affected some of the, the stories that ended up here and, and some that fell away. That's really beautiful. That's a really great thing to say. It gives me a lot of hope for the future. There is so much grace in this book. Um, and I, I don't want to ruin this because it's maybe my favorite or very, very high up on my list of favorite scenes, but your mother gives you such a special present at one point in the book, and I won't ruin it because it's so great. I want everyone to buy it, um, but the way that you talk about that gift and and how funny and awful and cringy and great it is, um, it just says so much about the complexity of, of that relationship and the grace that you give her and, and ultimately your father in the book as well. Um, I wanted to just ask you also, though, about just the sentences, because I think that there, this book is written with such um, a crystal clear vision and like truly such clean and direct prose that also is able to do so much work, as we've talked about. I think this is a phrase that people use, and I don't really like this phrase very much, but I feel like I have to say it a little. It's like, oh, like your writing can feel deceptively direct. You know, it's like, it just, it's like a train that we're on that we don't even realize we're on. It's so um, also unsparing and there's no self-pity in it. There's no, you know, there's not a lot of like emotion and pathos. It's just looking um, at very hard things very in a very clear-eyed and, and honest way. And so I wondered, um, yeah, like how you think about how the prose style really helps to underwrite or strengthen some of the thematic things in the book because they feel very intentionally linked. I imagine a different book that you could write would, would feel differently on the prose level. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I was thinking a lot, especially um, in the latter chapters and then, and then going back to the beginning um, when we were editing the book about um, like orchestration, like I, w I was kind of really just wanting to understand like what I got from pro-doming specifically in BDSM that could actually become part of the style of the book. Um, and I think a lot of that is orchestration, right? Like you are in charge of the scene, like a physical scene in a dungeon. Like as a dominant, you move things where you want them to be. Um, you get to tell everybody what the world looks like, the other people in the scene. And so I really, I tried to borrow some of that and to be really precise about bodies and what bodies were doing and where they were in space. Um, and maybe some of that does come across in the kind of directness, right? That there is a kind of um, a borrowing of, of that mode and bringing it to the page. Um, but I also think, you know, I my background as well is, is of course, in, in academia, and I think I, I did a lot of thinking about, you know, here's this theoretical, um, this theoretical lens, like, what does it look like in my actual life? Um, and, and I wanted to move those ideas into the most spare and direct um, mode that I could um, after reading them in, in a theoretical mode, which is everything but that for so long. Um, so I think that some of that might be there as well. So like training in different areas, like training as a professional dominatrix, training as an academic, like coming into the style in that way. That's um, that's so fascinating, actually. I love. I I would never have thought about that, but it is so evident to me the idea of 
of setting the scene and the precision of what you're doing and orchestration and it made for such a thrilling read. Um, okay, so my, my last question I want to ask you before we open it up to everybody um, is there's a great line at the end of the book in which you say the, um, the dominatrix is the id of the female, American female. I had it written out, but yeah, I got pretty close. It's an incredible line. Can you unpack that a little bit for us and talk to us a little bit about that? I mean, I think I originally wrote that line, um, you know, really in, in like 2017 when I was like grappling with Me Too, when I was grappling with like everything that was happening around me and, and thinking about all of the times that I couldn't say no, but then also really holding fast to the times that I could. And most of them were in fantasy space. And like, that is fucked up, but that is true. Um, I have told men no over and over and over again, and it felt really, really good to do that, to, and like in that moment to be able to reflect on having that, but then also feeling like, yeah, but like this is not my real life. Like this is my fantasy life. This is my performance. This is something that people are paying me to do, and so yeah, feeling like like the dominatrix gets to do what we're all screaming to do. But that's also really complicated because it is a fantasy and I wasn't paid to do it and that compromises all of it. Um, but it still felt powerful to me to know that I got that I got to do that. And I think that again, that's like, you know, there's no easy answer. There's no like this career was was you know liberatory for me or this career was exploitative. It, it was like both and all of it. Yeah, that section where you talk about that is so powerful. Okay, I feel like we should let other people ask you questions yeah hi um i'm kelly i absolutely loved pretty baby and especially the care with which you talked about deciding to market yourself as a lesbian dominatrix specifically even when you faced pushback against that and i was wondering whether you saw your marketing yourself branding yourself as a queer woman in the dominatrix space came up at all in how your mostly male clients viewed you and how that impacted if you felt it the power exchange yeah thank you that's a great question um i i definitely you know i had mixed feelings about about this choice because on the one hand i was like well i kind of have to because i look like a dyke and so <laughs> no one's kind of really believe me if I don't lean into that um, I, or you know I could you know try to hide it and go like oh like straight for pay I don't know and I have lots and lots of queer friends who, who do sex work I know way more queer people who do sex work than straight actually when I meet a straight dominatrix I'm like oh wow you can I okay um, but um, but like the like lesbian dom like to perform that like I wasn't performing my lesbianism at all. What I was performing was the lesbian of porn, like the male gaze lesbian. And to me, like that was really fun to play with, right? For a time. Like it was really fun to be able to like, if I'm gonna do this, like I'm gonna do it on your terms. I'm not gonna let you have something of mine. I'm gonna play in your realm. And um and yeah, I, I think I mean, I'll never know. Maybe I could have made a ton more money if I, if I hadn't, but yeah, that's the decision I made. 
So I'm just going to ask you about your influences, but but not um, but not necessarily the literature that you're reading, which I know is a lot of academic literature. I'm also an academic, so I, I understand this. But were there other art forms um, or other, you know, just things outside of just prose or literature strictly that were really informing or inspiring what you were doing or challenging what you were doing? I wrote this book during pandemic so in some ways um you know I was like I was very interior to the book um but I mean I think like a lot of this especially you know the chapters that are about pronoming like a lot of it is and like in the kind of iconography of BDSM and so like um leather community um like like I often confine myself in the one archives at USC, which have, like has a lot of holdings of like leather community document, you know, like like those kinds of um, those kinds of spaces I think are really influential on on the writing and just like what I want to take up. And so yeah, I mean like I don't know, I was hooped up at home. I can't say I was like in the leather bar like thinking about how to render it on the page. Um, but um, but like that's the iconography from which I like draw a lot of a lot of well, you were just saying in your short time in New York, you've already gone to an art gallery that, I can't remember exactly what you were saying, but it seems like, I mean, it seems like you draw a lot of inspiration from art or from other music or other sources of just input, so. Yeah, and I mean, and that was like, that's like gay iconography as well. It was, actually, my friend is here, I don't know if you, like, what's the artist's name who we saw? Gilford? Gilford, Lucas Gilford, right? <laughs> um, uh, Lucas Gilbert is the photographer, um, and those images are, are of the International Gay Rodeo. So again, like these, like sort of yeah, like images of of like queer life, um, of masculinity, um, all of that. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. I have a question for Chris. Um, so my question is about you talk about um, you know sort of the most painful parts of your graduate program, and now that you are. Professor, I want to know how you take that with you as you interact with your young students. And clearly, they're giving a lot to you. Um, how do you think you can give back to them and like influence your program as well? Yes, yeah, thank you. That's a really great question. Um, you know, I. I want to see like sex worker student unions at colleges. Like I like it's you know it's incredibly unfortunate that so many people who do sex work because there are a lot of people who are academics who do sex work like any other job and especially any other like contingent labor force or underpaid labor force. Um, there are so many students who do sex work um, all over the country and you know like having like I, I hope that like this book does something in that realm that people feel like they can be open about the work that they're doing and organize around it. I mean, that would be, like, ideally, I would love to see that kind of thing happen and just have students, like, be able to talk about the kinds of work they're doing if they are. Because um, I've had students come to me in, like, private, you know, hush-hush situations to talk about um, doing sex work. And, like, that's, that's really unfortunate. And um, it's keeping people... Um, from organizing, really. Um, you talk quite a bit in the book about uh, setting like boundaries and rules with um, themselves before they come, you know, to London. And I, I wondered if like setting those kinds of boundaries and rules 
Google, their their you know do's and do nots, like has affected your like relationships outside of sex work and how you set boundaries with people? Um, I don't think that. I mean, through the span of time in, in this book, I don't think I was any better at it inside the dungeon than outside the dungeon. Um, but I do think that some of that's a me problem. Um, but, I, you know, I do think that, like, we should collectively, like, take our cues about, um, about questions of, like, consent and boundaries from sex workers and learn from sex workers. Um, because I think that, you know, like, the book contains so many different scenes of, like, ambiguity that's, like, just, you know, like, that's sex, right? Like, that's sex. And, um, you know, I think that people who are engaging it at that level, like, really have something to give. And so, like, you know, for me, like, I don't know. I don't I don't think that, like, I learned a great deal in the dungeon that helped me navigate the rest of my life. Like, I have to do that in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was actually really interested in, because you've been using the phrase homeless And I know that it's, like, you know, obviously in the book is like a really present part of your life. Um, and the like organizing around the previous book. I'm just really curious about like what it what the process would be to like decide on using the word former or whether you think that might be a temporary experience or Yeah, and that's a great question. I mean and it's all related to again like stigma, right? Um, when I when I wanted to write this book, it was actually like really imperative to me that I was still working um, because I think we need narratives about sex work for people who are currently working. Um, and really like the pandemic, well, I mean, if FOSTA SESTA didn't almost put me out of business, like the pandemic did. And like, I have a lot of privilege that allowed that to happen because I had other forms of work to do. Um, so I was able to stop working during the pandemic. Um, but I, you know, like the, that, like word former. I mean, that's never really true. Like I'll never, I'll never stop taking like money from from men who <laughs> want to be beaten if I know them. <laughs> the, book, the book makes it really hard to like. I don't think I would ever be able to like um, to take out an ad as a pro dom anymore because it's too easy, obviously, to find my name. But um, but you know, like those are all real negotiations of like job of safety of you know and they all have to do with like stigma and um and like perceived danger and so yeah i mean the word former is there like a, a lot of that to like protect me i guess in some ways um and it's also like disingenuous i think we've got to wrap it up i hope everybody buys this book if you haven't it's so brilliant i'm so glad we all got to talk to you um i just want to give you a last round of applause Thanks for listening to this episode of the Greenlight Bookstore podcast. We're grateful to our production partners at Libro.fm for working with us. Libro.fm provides access to thousands of digital audiobooks through partnerships with independent bookstores nationwide. You can purchase Libro.fm audiobooks at greenlightbookstore.com. You can subscribe to the Greenlight Bookstore podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, download it as a free audiobook from Libro.fm, or stream it on greenlightbookstore.com slash podcast. There, you can also find past episodes and links to purchase the books discussed. The best way to support your local independent bookstore and the literary communities we serve is as simple as buying a book.